Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Calvin Ng from Yale University. Empire of Convicts, Indian Penal Labor in Colonial Southeast Asia by Professor Anand Yang, published by University of California Press in 2021, focuses on male and female Indians incarcerated in Southeast Asia for criminal and political offenses committed in Colonial South Asia. From the 17th century onward, penal transportation was a key strategy of British imperial rule, exemplified by deportations first to the Americas and later to Australia. Case studies from the insular prisons of Bengkulu, Penang, and Singapore illuminate another cultural, cultural regime in the Indian Ocean world that brought South Asia and Southeast Asia together through a global system of forced migration and coerced labor. A major contribution to histories of crime and punishment, prisons, law, labor, transportation, migration, colonialism, and the Indian Ocean world, Empire of Convicts narrates the experiences of Indian Banwas or convicts and shows how they exercise agency in difficult situations, fashioning their own worlds, and even becoming their own warders. Anand Yang brings together long journeys across the Kalapani or Black Waters to life in a deeply researched and engrossing account that moves fluidly between local and global contexts. Over the course of our conversation, we'll talk not just about Professor Anand Yang's approach to writing history, but also the histories of empire, labor, and new avenues for thinking about microhistory following the transnational turn. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoyed the book, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. Today, I'm here to talk with Professor Anand Yang. The, prof- uh, the author of the important book, Empire of Convicts, Indian Penal Labor in Colonial Southeast Asia. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn both about the history of Indian Banwas or convict labor- laborers in the street settlements, as well as the centrality of unfree and dependent labor in the development of European imperialism and global capitalism writ large. Anand Yang perhaps requires no introduction, but just briefly, Anand Yang is the Walker Family Endowed Professor in History and Professor of International Studies at the University of Washington, Seattle. His monographs include the books The Limited Raj, Agrarian Relations in Colonial India, On Peasants and Agrarian Societies Under British Colonial Rule, and Bazaar India, Peasants, Traders, Markets, and the Colonial State in Gangetic Bihar, which situates subaltern history in the world of commerce and culture and highlights the economic, social, and cultural transactions that ordinary men and women engaged in to negotiate the market economy of colonial India. Both these books, of course, have been canonical books, field-forming books in the field of South Asia history. He has also published an edited volume on crime and criminality in British India, as well as another volume on interactions, transregional perspectives on world history, in addition to numerous articles in journals in Asian studies, history, and the social sciences. Welcome, Anand, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your deeply engrossing book today. So can you start us off perhaps by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors you had? 
Sure. First, first things first, thank you, Kelvin, for that very effusive and generous introduction. Delighted to be on this podcast. Um, in some ways, the book returns to something that's very much part of my family history, because one branch of my family met the poet Rabindranath Tagore in Singapore and eventually, eventually made his way to join Tagore in 1930 in India. And then my own immediate branch of the family followed. And so I was born and grew up uh, in Shantiniketan, where Tagore was uh, based, and where his university, uh, in which my father was a research scholar, was involved in. But uh, from uh, Shantiniketan in Bengal, I moved on to Delhi, and I'm really uh, a Delhi boy, as I would uh, self-characterize uh, uh, myself, um, you know, because that's those were the formative years. Uh, growing up in Delhi, going to uh, a Christian brothers Catholic school there, starting out really in more in the sciences and engineering, and then eventually making my way to the social sciences and humanities, uh, in part, I think, because I had a very influential high school teacher of history, Mrs. Uh, Gonzalez, Ellen, Ellen Gonzalez, uh, in kind of the next kind of stopover in my family's life, which was in Mexico City, where I attended a school called Colegio Americano. And then eventually I made my way to the states where I attended Swarthmore College, mostly in the sciences, but my by my junior year I switched to history. Thank you so much for that, and I think the sort of really cosmopolitan or perhaps transnational coordinates of your own upbringing has really informed uh, the process of writing this book, uh, which is really an expansive global globally visioned history of convict labor that brings us not simply between South Asia and Southeast Asia, but also draws out those connections between um, this Indian Ocean world with what is happening in the Americas as well as Australia. So here I would just like to invite you to tell us uh, a little bit about how you came to write Empire of Convicts. How did the idea develop? Who, what was the research process like? What archives did you turn to? And just how was your writing experience overall? So long before there was a subaltern studies, which emerged in the 1980s, I was really interested in people living at the margins of society. And that's in part why I ended up in this North Indian province of Bihar, which over the colonial period and to this day is one of the poorest parts of India. So poor that it's often compared to uh, some of the most backward parts of sub-Saharan Africa. So in order to reconstruct and evoke the lives of ordinary men and women, the only way you can get at their stories and get at their voices is very often through indirectly through various kinds of sources, such as of the criminal justice system, uh, where very often in court proceedings, trial proceedings, you can hear, you can sometimes eavesdrop on the voices of ordinary men and women. So I, uh, 
you know, I, for a very long time, I did kind of agrarian and rural history because I was interested in the world of peasants. But I was always interested in how does one listen to these voices? How does one find these voices? And that meant very often going to uh, criminal records where, where they were very often um, unfairly targeted uh, just because they were poor, just because they were on the margins, just because they were weak in relation to either the state or to other kinds of superordinate uh, groups. Thank you so much for that. And I think that Empire of Convicts really sort of crystallizes some of your interests um, in law, criminality, and social history in your first monograph, as well as on subalternity and commerce in your second. Um, but I'm also really interested in how, as a historian trained in the field of South Asian history, you came to become interested in uh, Southeast Asian history and the question of convict labor and penal transportation being just an apposite lens to bridge these two area studies, regional subfields together. Um, so as someone perhaps deeply engaged and, uh, with and conversant in these two fields, can you share with us perhaps what South Asian history and Southeast Asian history respectively can gain from one another and what they both can perhaps gain from transnational, transregional studies more broadly? You know, it, it's perhaps partly biographical or autobiographical that I'm naturally interested in linkages and connections across space and time. Uh, and so I've, there's always been a part of me because of my own heritage that's interested in India-China connections, but also interested in India's connections to the wider world. Uh, and, and traditionally, historians have sort of looked at colonial societies in relation to the metropole. I think because I'm interested in voices on the margins and subalterns, I'm more interested in South-South connections rather than South-North connections. And so that, in some ways, led me to thinking about how to re relate South Asian history to East Asian history, but also uh, Southeast Asian history. And so looking at things, and I could have, you know, whether one studies capitalism or one studies migration, and in my case, uh, people who were transported, exiled, and banished to Southeast Asia, these were ways of connecting up uh, different regions that historians, in part out of convenience, in part out of habit, very often keep apart. Because uh, for the longest of time, the way history was written is largely uh, narratives of the nation, whether nation in the making or nations that were already formed and where that was going. And so uh, I wanted to look at uh, sort of trans-regional, trans-local, transnational, and international history rather than just national history. Thank you so much for that. And for our listeners, here might be a good place to flag out uh, also by Professor Yang, 13 Months in China, A Subaltern Indian and the Colonial World, which is really this extraordinary monograph that focuses on Thakur uh, Gadadar Singh, who, who, was a, uh, who was a subaltern Indian soldier who was dispatched over to China during the Boxer Rebellion that I think really beautifully constellates um, these transnational, trans, transregional interactions as well. 
But now, returning to our book at hand, Empire of Convicts and its chapter, this book addresses a broad range of archival material and thematic concerns, while providing a fine-grained microhistory of the lives of its historical subjects. Um, so before we delve uh, more deeply into the book, can you share with us uh, how you organized the book chronologically or thematically, and who were the intended theoretical interlocutors uh, for this work? What sort of historiographical intervention were you seeking to make with uh, Empire of Convicts? Well, this is a slightly different book than my earlier books. And this may say something about, you know, you get to, you put in enough time in the, in the discipline and the profession, you don't feel the need, which is acutely there when you're a PhD student, to cite every word you say. And, and to references. So this book, other than archival and primary sources, tends not to cite all the people, all the books that have really been influential in shaping this. And one hopes that in reading it, you can see where Foucault comes in or Marx comes in or subaltern studies comes in or Agamben or any of the other people that are shaped this kind of work come in but it's largely stripped of those kinds of references because I've written this very much in as engaging and accessible a way that the general reader can read it as a bunch of stories that tell a certain kind of story, that tell a certain kind of tale which people can figure out. And if they find um, multiple sort of main thematics, you know, one could be labor, one could be about mobility, one could be about uh, colonial and imperial structures. There are a number of different ways in which you can see uh, certain threads running through the book. Of course, yeah. And I think that that's one of the main strengths of the book as well. It's just a lucidity and clarity of the prose, uh, it's really rare to find in, in an academic monograph that so successfully and convincingly brings the lives of these historical subjects to life. Um, when I was reading the book, it was almost as if many of these historical subjects were just directly present uh, around me. And you could just palpably feel the sort of environment, the context, the historical background in which they were so deeply immersed in. Um, and really, this stems out of the work's focus, I think, on the lived experiences of convict laborers from India, who are known as uh, Banwars, um, and who come to be housed in the three uh, penal settlements in the Indian Ocean across the long 19th century. So these are Bankulu or Bankulin in West Sumatra, Penang in present-day Malaysia, and Singapore. So for listeners who might not be as familiar with this history, can you provide some context on the emergence of penal transportation as a colonial strategy? When and how does it develop? And what political function did it serve? Who were the convicts who were sentenced to transportation? Sure. And this is where I think the, the, the necessity of understanding the wider framework in which a lot of historical processes unfold so penal transportation is not something suddenly invented in the late 18th century in India. Rather, the British have a long history with it, uh, dating all the way back to uh, North America and the use of transportation until um, American independence ended, sort of closed that down. And then roughly thereafter, uh, Britain is looking to send its uh, 
ordinary criminals to other parts of the world and they start on Australia, which of course becomes the destination of the largest number of people ever sent by one state to another part of the world because over 160,000 people end up in Australia. Compared to them, the numbers are much smaller, but contemporaneous with what Britain is doing with its own subjects, both uh, people from England as well as from Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, they're also thinking of ways to rid the Indian subcontinent of people they consider undesirable for some reason or the other. And interestingly, the difference is the people who are banished from India are not the ones who've done, you know, stolen an item of a shilling's worth or two shillings worth. Rather, many of them are uh, convicted of heinous crimes, but many of those heinous crimes really are social crimes in that there are people who are contesting each other's claims or have issues with one another because the British uh, colonial state has introduced legal regimes that, that are very different than sort of the traditional customs and institutions that govern the lives of people. So they're making a lot of things illegal that didn't, weren't necessarily dealt with that way in, in sort of previous regimes. Um, so many of the people who are getting sent to um, the penal colonies, and these penal colonies are being invented, being developed as fast as the British are acquiring new territories. And where it differs from, say, Australia is you're not sending them to a vast landscape to live alongside of indigenous inhabitants. You're sending them to areas that are just coming under British control where the number of local inhabitants isn't huge. And so turn, and using these uh, enclaves that, that the British have conquered, captured, uh, taken over through some legal treaty uh, exacted out of local sultans and uh, discovering that they desperately need labor to build up these enclaves to become the entrepots or to become the key strategic ports they want in, uh, in the Straits of Malacca. I see. And, and that's a really sort of global and transnational perspective that I think you bring to the study of these prisons, these penal settlements in the streets of Malacca specifically, because on one hand, you do compare it to criminal exile in the Portuguese and Spanish empires, as well as Dutch penal transportation to places like Ceylon and the Cape of Good Hope. And on the other, it's also self-consciously sort of drawing on while modifying the earlier history of British penal transportation in places like Maryland, Virginia, uh, Nova Scotia, the Gold Coast, um, West Africa, New South Wales, etc. In fact, British administrators, as you had uh, brought up in your book, um, they had also considered the possibility of adding places like Botany Bay or the West Indies or Aden to this network of penal transportation. So to what extent were there similarities and differences between these different networks of penal transportation? Um, and if we were to look at the street settlements specifically, um, you had mentioned that it was what was unique about it was that they were not confronted with um, a vast territory with indigenous peoples. So what, how did this difference uh, influence the forms of penal labor or penal uh, 
life that emerged in the wake of that? And methodologically, what sort of analytic possibilities does this sort of comparative frame open up for us? I think this is where race and ethnicity really comes to play. Um, the way different European empires use penal transportation was sending their own people. Uh, in the case of the Dutch, they were also sending people from Indonesia to uh, today's South Africa. But on the whole, penal transportation involved people sending their own subjects or their colonized subjects, if you think of Ireland as kind of a form of internal colonialism, sending these people to distant parts of the world to extend the frontiers of empire, using them to stake out colonies and develop colonies. The Portuguese, for instance, do this, um, develop, develop this technique very effectively. So sending them to outposts in Africa, then to outposts in India, and then all the way to Brazil, uh, sending their uh, own people to really uh, plant their flag in all these new colonies. In the case of the British, it's sending people that they have colonized, who they don't think, uh, who think, who they think of as inferior peoples and using them because they're more familiar with them than the local inhabitants who they find not very willing to come on sort of, to accept the British terms of employment. So wherever the British go in Southeast Asia, Malays and Indonesians are very hard to come by because of the different systems of uh, labor engagements that exist among local patrons uh, for whom uh, control of human bodies is more important than control of land, as was the case in India. And so most of the people are in various forms of bonded labor arrangements, Malays and Indonesians, and not willing to work for the kinds of wages that the British are offering, and therefore the need to import labor. And I think you had asked an earlier question about why the sequence of chapters. And the sequence of chapters is roughly chronological, but also roughly contemporaneous. So I start with Sumatra because the British sent few people here and there in the 17th and early 18th century, but it really doesn't pick up systematically as a penal destination till late in the 18th century, roughly at the same time Australia is opening up in the 1780s. And then kind of Penang, which becomes the next dumping ground of large numbers of people. But that begins to change in the 1830s and 40s with the rise of Singapore. And Singapore, as Singapore becomes more important to British possessions in this part of the world, they send more and more people there to really build up from scratch uh, the ports, the wharves, the gunges, the roads, the buildings that they so desperately need in order to make, uh, and, and they, they use this kind of phrasing to make Singapore the next, the Calcutta of the Indian Ocean and the, and the China Seas. Because you know, this is critical for the China trade, which is one of the most lucrative trades that the East India Company is involved in in the early, eight, early 19th century. Thank you so much for that. And I think that that also sort of really captures um, the function of coerced labor in building up these port cities to 
basically what they are today. Um, and in important ways, you describe this work as a global history of coerced labor, because in their own self-perception, many of these banwas understood themselves as knockers or uh, servants of the East India Company, and therefore it was a definition of themselves in terms of the value of their labor. And their labor value was also something that colonial authorities recognized and capitalized on in order to maximize their, their own financial profit. Um, and in order to justify to Calcutta and to London on the benefits of coerced labor. So how does this view of unfree labor, so centrally convict labor, but also if we were to talk about this in more expensive terms, also including slavery, indenture, bonded labor, how does this view of unfree labor modify the view of a 19th century transition from coerced labor to wage labor, for instance? And how might this offer us a new perspective on, on global labor history and the different uneven trajectories of labor across divergent settings? I mean, there's, a, there's an extensive body of literature that has sort of been attempting to understand chattel slavery in terms of different forms of coerce, semi-coerce, and free labor. And as this, this scholarship has been very helpful for me, because I did earlier work on migrant labor, a lot of it sort of voluntary, voluntary. I mean, as voluntary as, as the labor of poor people can be who are desperately seeking whatever options they can get in order to survive. Uh, so free labor in that sense. Uh, so just as I've been interested in tying those different kinds of labor systems together, I see convict labor and convict labor in Southeast Asia, initially in the late 18th and early 19th century, worked alongside slaves, slaves from East Africa and from Madagascar, but also bonded labor in the sense that labor that were uh, by Southeast Asian terms of engagement, uh, uh, near slaves for a certain term of years, because it was debt slavery or mangering uh, form of labor. So rather than see these as uh, you know, in diametric terms or binary terms, uh, I believe as does this rich body of literature on labor, that there really is a spectrum ranging from extreme forms of coerced labor to what we consider free labor, and that it's more a spectrum rather than uh, dichotomies or binaries. And so convict labor really, who, who convict la convicts who are treated like slaves, but never quite in the enslaved conditions that the extreme forms of chattel slavery entailed, particularly in the Americas, uh, they, they saw themselves not in terms of being enslaved, but, and here this is their attempt at uh, winning back some of their dignity, seeing themselves as workers, much in the sense that uh, people who were recruited to join uh, the Indian military saw themselves as performing labor or knockery. Convicts see themselves as uh, knockers. And I think this is perhaps also learned from, from the whole institution of recruitment of soldiers. 
Uh, and since the, the, many of the convicts, interestingly, all end up speaking Hindustani, which becomes the lingua franca, even though many of the convicts come from other parts of India and are not, are not native Hindustani speakers, they use this Hindustani term nakri to define themselves, which interestingly is uh, the newer literature in Australian convict studies from about 30 years ago started insisting that convicts not be thought of solely as criminals, but be thought of as convict workers, because that's what they did during their terms of penal servitude. That's really, that's such an important point, I think, because it really reframes the centrality of the labor as forms of productive labor that was really crucial in in the generation of value and in the sort of building up of uh, the infrastructure for, for the circulation of capital within the, and across the Indian Ocean. And I think that your work here has also been influenced by the global and transnational turns in historical scholarship, even as it remains resolutely committed to the project of excavating histories from below. What I found really beautiful about your work is how it narrates and highlights the everyday lives and experiences of ordinary men and women in negotiating the large-scale structural transformations that are wrought by colonialism, imperialism, capitalism. So here I want to pose a question, which is, what is the analytic utility of working with and across these two spatial scales? On one hand, the really micro-historical, and on the other hand, the macroscopic. And how did you negotiate or balance these two historiographical sort of impulses? Yeah, you know, I mean, if you were sort of, uh, if I were characterizing what I've tried to do in this book in very broad strokes, I would say it's partly an outgrowth of micro-history meets global and world history. And the importance of microhistory, and I think you put that very well, is making sure that the historical actor, actors you're talking about are locally grounded. If, if the emphasis of your work is in identifying the faces in the crowd, they exist as flesh and blood human actors. If you think in terms of them with their feet planted on the, the soil, whether it's the soil of where they originated in, in India or where they ended up. And the importance of those identities in shaping their experiences and outlook on their, their penal servitude in Southeast Asia. So uh, the importance of grounding people in the local societies they, they reside in, but also understanding that they may not necessarily know it, but they're caught up in processes that are really global in nature. And what, what I see my historical subjects doing is trying to eke out some sort of bare existence out of the, these circumstances into which they have been thrust, not of their own making. And so it's partly about this tension between the lives they're trying to fabricate themselves for themselves uh, in a world that is that is in some ways beyond their control. So what is it, how do they attempt to, to make meaning out of their being? And it's done through how they identify themselves as knockers. It's done in terms of the skills they learn and how they translate those skills into jobs 
in the post-convict lives. It's their attempts to create uh, family-like situations for themselves. Uh, so it's done in any number of uh, what seems like very ordinary kinds of ways, but these or this ordinary ensemble of ways they use really adds to uh, the meaning they can carve out for themselves uh, in the lives they have in these uh, alien places they find themselves. That's really meaningful. And I think that that also brings us nicely to uh, the second chapter of, of your book, Across the Kalapani, because really what most of these uh, laborers were confronted with was the was this prospect of having to cross the Kalapani or the Black Waters. And I think that your first chapter here really locates the phenomenon of penal transportation um, as a strategy of colonial rule and domination, whose effectiveness derived precisely from caste sensitivities around the Kalapani or Black Waters. So here, can I ask you to elaborate a bit on this powerful imaginary of the Kalapani and how it came to shape the tone and tenor of the official discourse on transportation in India? Yeah, the, the British are attached to this idea of penal transportation, which to them means sending them overseas, which meant crossing the black waters. And they believed it had a special efficacy in the Indian setting because it, it was transgressive, because many people considered crossing the black waters ritually uh, dangerous because it necessarily entailed violating certain kinds of caste taboos. Or, uh, and this is partly a mythology, partly it's real. Obviously crossing the black waters means a lot more to people that were sent from inland South Asia rather than coastal South Asia. Uh, after all, the ties between uh, the coasts of India, both coasts of India, or all coasts of India with Southeast Asia, date back to sort of, uh, uh, you know, the BC period. Uh, so people in um, the Coromandel coast or the Malabar coast, they're very familiar with the shores of Southeast Asia because their boats have been navigating these waters. But for somebody from Bihar or UP or the inland areas, uh, it was terrifying. Part of what is also terrifying is what all uh, exilees, uh, all transportees felt going into the realm of the unfamiliar. Uh, and so whether it was uh, English men and women, Irish men and women, or Indian men and women being transported overseas, they all thought that was the last time they would ever see their native place their relatives, uh, their people ever again. And there was lots of sobbing and weeping uh, in, in sort of uh, any form of exile because you, you're being torn from what's, what you're most familiar with and being sent into the distant unknown many months removed in the early 19th century from where you started out. So um, the British are really capitalizing on this to think of transportation as having a special efficacy in India, which it does, but not universally across the subcontinent, uh, other than in terms of 
any punishment which takes people away from their family and loved ones and sends them to distant places is terrifying. It's additionally terrifying for people who've never crossed the Black Waters and who think of the Black Waters as crossing the Black Waters as something uh, ritually transgressive. I think that that's beautifully put. And I think that uh, just to delve into some of the characters who appear in your book as well, um, I want to move on to the next chapter, Banwas Malays, uh, Sebandi Sipois and Yasmen, which really focuses on the penal colony of Bengkulu between the late 18th century. And it centers around this really extraordinary persona, Fatih Khan, who becomes the leader of the small local community of Indian Banwars and Sepoys, and who is acknowledged as such by the honorific titles Sahib and Sardar. Can you tell us a bit more about Fatih Khan and the Khan brothers uh, more generally? So how did Fatih Khan emerge to such standing despite serving a lifetime, a lifetime of transportation and hard labor? So the, the, there were three Khan brothers based in the North Indian city of Banaras. And uh, not according to them, but according to uh, court papers, they were prosecuted for having killed a young boy and stolen his jewels. And for some reason in the late 18th and early 19th century, this became a kind of offense that the British were fascinated by, intrigued by, horrified by. And so they started prosecuting these cases very vigorously, obviously designed to show the, the barbarism and, the, and the, the strangeness of Indian society that people would commit these kinds of crimes. So these brothers are sent, they claim they were completely innocent because they were well-off soldiers and they would never have robbed uh, robbed the jewels of some little boy. They had money, uh, double, triple that kind of money just lying around their house in Banaras. So they end up in Bengkulu and through uh, their petitions as well as their court case that occurs much, much later, I'm able to piece together that within the first 10 years of their arrival in Bengkulu, uh, Fateh Khan, one of the brothers, uh, ends up becoming the counter uh, of the, so he works in the colonial treasury and his job is to count the money. So talk about using a thief, of sorts to count the money in the in in the in in Bengkulu. and then he also becomes the head watchman of the convict lines where people sleep at night uh, to make sure that nobody exited or came back in uh, past curfew hours, and he uses this to gain quite a bit of power. So by the time I see him again in about 1808, uh, 1809, 1810, he has become the Sardar or the chief, as well as the Sahib, which is typically a term of respect used for Europeans and not generally for Indians. He's considered the Sahibs of not only the convicts, but also the detachment, the regiment that is the Indian regiment that is stationed there. He is acquired, uh, he's married to a local Malay woman. He has a slave from the nearby island of Nias. He has, uh, he and his brother have two houses. They're the center of 
the social world of the convicts. They have weapons. They have money lying around. They're even the money lender and the banker for a number of people in their community, not just fellow convicts, but also soldiers and also uh, Europeans who borrow from them. Uh, so obviously they have managed to use their position to great advantage and emerge as the leaders of the Indian community in Bengkulu by the first decade of the 19th century. It's really quite an extraordinary story. And I think that what it also reveals is the really contingent and conjunctural logics of colonial administration that, you know, um, these convict brothers who were convicted for a crime could emerge to such status in, in Bengkulin society. Another thing that really struck me about this chapter was what became known as the Raffles Regulation or the Bankulin Rules in the early 1820s, which became reproduced in modular form across other insular prisons in Southeast Asia. So what were the political imperatives and economic uh, factors accounting for this shift in penal rules and practices? And how did they re reflect the shifting logics of governmentality uh, on part of the colonial state during this early 19th century moment? I, I, I would start kind of in an earlier place to emphasize that in any kind of imperial system, what one part of the empire wants can be slightly different than what the other part of the empire wants. So India's interest is get rid of these people. This is sort of flotsam and jetsam, toss them out of the country. Uh, and punish them as severe, severely as possible by making them do hard labor. The interests of the receiving venues, the sort of penal colonies is send your able-bodied men, as many as possible, and we will use them for much needed labor. And because we need their brawn, we're going, going to treat them harshly, but also indulgently because we need their bodies to perform the kinds of work that we need them for. And sometimes it's hard labor. And interestingly, in the case of Bengkulu, uh, a large body of convicts are used to fight the battles. They're, they're dressed up in military uniforms and used to find lo local wars with uh, neighboring sultans. So they're used in a, a number of different ways. And so because the premium in the penal colonies is on the labor potential of the convicts, uh, the protocols that are created, what becomes the Benkulu uh, or the Raffles rules is designed to exact a pound of flesh, but without damaging the bodies of the men. And so how do you get as much labor out of them as possible? Well, you regulate the hours you give them a day off, you give them certain freedoms, and those freedoms I sort of highlight more in subsequent chapters, uh, and you try to tame the convict body by allowing them indulgences such as allowing them to pair off with local women, because by domesticating them, you make them more pliant subjects. And so Raffles very much believed that by allowing them to marry and have families, that was a surefire way of making them uh, effective and efficient workers. And so these rules are then picked up and, and developed everywhere else. And one of the critical elements of the, the, these rules are 
create certain classes of convicts and, and motivate them to rise to the better classes. And each of these classes has various degrees of freedom or unfreedom. And so it's set up as kind of both to create a, uh, what in sort of labor studies used to be called an aristocracy of labor, where certain people are more privileged than others, and you're kind of buying them off. As, uh, and we know that these forms of labor, of course, exist very much so in today's kind of capitalist economy. Who is co-opted and who's not? I think that that's really perceptive. And I think the, the sort of strategy of creating differentiations and hierarchies among uh, prisoners is also evident in the story that you present in the next chapter, Company Kinoker, um, which examines the emergence of Penang as a penal depot in the late 18th century. And I think that here, what is what was most clear about the emergence of this sort of hierarchy is the ways in which political prisoners, and most notably the 73 poligar or palayakarar or chieftains or lord prisoners, were treated differently from the banwas. Um, and in Penang, which became an insular prison for many of these political prisoners, you see these um, political prisoners being treated um, in very distinct and specific ways when you compare the experiences with those of the laborers who were made to uh, perform hard labor on the island. So I guess here I just want to push you a little bit about what accounted for these contradictory imperatives guiding colonial policy, and does it similarly stem from this understanding of disciplinary power as something to be internalized and to be uh, enacted on a scale of the body. Yeah, in, in part, it's sort of this contrast between their princesses, their, their royalty, they're not robbers. So you, you treat them differently, but of course that's also a portrait in contrast that, that these convicts can see the possibility of being treated differently that these, these 73 polygars are treated to as opposed to their lot. And their lot, the possibilities are because these uh, raffle rules are being established, there's the chance to uh, get at these other states that are more benign than hard labor. And here, of course, as in Australia, what is really being developed in uh, Southeast Asia is are a more, a more sophisticated form of parole, right? So parole, parole is just either you're, you're unfree or you're on parole. In, in the case of convicts, there are various gradations. And so it goes from gradations of three to gradations of six and eight, again, designed to both um, subordinate convicts as well as to give them a certain measure of hope. Of course, it's a, it's it's hope that you're gonna you're gonna be free, but you're gonna be a very ordinary and mostly a very impoverished person, but nevertheless, no longer having to be up at six a.m. or seven a.m. to put in the eight hours of hard labor out out in the under the tropical sun. Uh, so it so Penang is somewhat different. And to I use the polygars just as I will in the Singapore chapter between political exilees and convicts to sort of when you juxtapose them side by side, you see how the raffle rules to a certain extent work in that it offers the possibilities of moving on to the next level 
if you work as hard as possible. I see. I see. And that really, you know, I think that for someone who is, you know, compelled or forced to labor under these circumstances, that does make a big difference to, to, to be able to work an hour late, for example, or to be able to miss an hour's worth of work or perhaps to not be uh to not have to work under under the tropical sun the tropical heat for 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 some period of time that that must have been a really sort of strong incentive for them to undertake this uh system of parole um and i think that what emerges as well in your chapter on penang is a fascinating account of several high profile escapes um as convicts uh absconded with recourse to the long standing circuits of trade and shipping across the indian ocean so you give us really many fascinating stories that of Jalia Kundan, Mudukiti Narayana, Dadapoy Pestonji. I was wondering if you could just give our listeners one or two examples of this and how did the colonial authorities respond to these escapes? Yeah, I mean, for the authorities in India, um, they wanted to hear nothing more about their convicts once, once they had left the subcontinent. Good riddance to, you know, bad rubbish kind of thing. Um, so escapes always pulled them back into thinking about the lives of convicts. So they're always worried about it. But why wouldn't there be more escapes? After all, the Karamandal coast, southeastern coast of India and Southeast Asia are so intimately linked and have been for you know 2,000 years. So uh, boats are plying these waters back and forth. Uh, any number of boats going to the areas around Penang. So, for instance, between Aceh and the Coromandel Coast, uh, regular fleets of, of native boats going. And these boats made make escapes possible, unlike from Calcutta, where most of the boats that go from Calcutta to Penang are company boats. And so it's sort of sneaking onto those boats is a lot harder than sneaking onto native boats. And since convicts, other than when they labor, are not really locked up in concrete structures, not till much, much later, they basically live wherever they, in effect, pitch their tent or wherever they make their bed. And they just have to show up at the muster every day in order to go to work. And so they're very loosely guarded. So it's easy for them to escape. And I use these high profile escapes, particularly of this guy named Jalia in order to emphasize several aspects of one, who these convicts are and what their lives are like, and then how, how uh, interconnected South Asia is to Southeast Asia, because Jalia is a convict, but he's a convict, a, a, because his actions, his political actions have been criminalized. He and his caste refused to accept the sovereignty of uh, the colonial state in his locality of Western India. And so they fought to the bitter end and uh, they even tried to rescue him when he was captured. And so when he's uh, banished to uh, Penang, being kind of the the warrior that he was, the fighter he was, he ingeniously figures out a way to make his uh, to make his journey back to where he came from, uh, and he is not captured till several months later because he's a respected leader in his local community. 
So it's designed to show what is considered criminal is really a political crime. It's sort of resistance to uh, the, the expanding and growing colonial state, and then to show how deeply connected South and Southeast Asia are, that this man can easily make his way back, as did a number of other people, uh, back to uh, Western India. And also the kind of uh, what he said about where he was. Uh, so these escapes, escape accounts are also one of the few occasions where you can eavesdrop sort of on the voices of convicts because he's saying, you know, where were you? And it's not surprising. Uh, he, he paints his experiences in religious colors and even dons religious garb uh, in order to make his way back. So he dresses as a religious mendicant to make his way back furtively from Madras all the way back to Western India. And when asked where he was, he and other people often used uh, the language of uh, the Ramayan, the sort of Hindu epic, which not only is every Indian familiar with, but many people in Southeast Asia are familiar with the story of Ram. So they often talked about, and they were of course right, having gone to Lanka, which just means island, uh, not only a reference to Sri Lanka or Ceylon, but also a generic term applied to any island. And after all, this is what convicts are being sent to, different islands across the Indian Ocean. That's really fascinating. And I think that that also brings us very nicely to another set of political prisoners that who are just incredibly of inordinate importance to uh, your book uh, and who appear in the next chapter, uh, Near China Beyond the Seas, Far, Far Distant from Juggernaut. And of course, I'm referring here to the two uh, Sikh rebels, Pai Maharaj Singh and Kuruk Singh, who were exiled to Singapore in 1850. And I just want to invite you to speak a little bit about their experiences as political prisoners in Singapore and what accounts for the voluminous correspondence about these two figures in the colonial archives. What do these narratives reveal or do not reveal about the experiences of convicts in, in Singapore? Yeah, so um, unlike, say, for Australia or for the Americas, to date, I have not found a single letter written by a convict to family members. One, they were not allowed to do that. They were allowed to receive letters, but they couldn't send letters home. And because these uh, two larger-than-life Sikh rebels, two men who fought to the bitter end long after many Sikh notables had surrendered in the First and Second Anglo-Sikh Wars, Bhai Marad Singh and his companion Kalak Singh fought to the bitter end. They were almost the last holdouts, and they were finally captured in December 1849, and then early 1850, they're sent. And they're very unhappy about uh, being held captive, and the reason why they're sent to Singapore, and this tells you something about what, what, uh, what this whole penal experience was about, because the, the governor general in India believed uh, better not to hang them, to execute them and turn them into martyrs, better to send them into obscurity, right? A kind of social death of sorts by sending them to some remote place where nobody would ever hear about them again, 
And of course, that never happens in history because people can live on in, in history as these two people do. So they're allowed at, at a certain point when they're not doing very well, particularly by Marad Singh, uh, who is ill and sick and very unhappy with being held captive, they, they make a concession and they say, here, you're allowed to write a letter home to your family. And the family in their case is their religious order. And so they pen a letter in Gurmukhi, the, the script in which uh, Punjabi can be written. And of course, no one can read that in Singapore at that time. There are no Sikhs. My guess is they're likely to be the first two Sikhs in Singapore, although it's possible because Punjab had was just being acquired and completely taken over uh, in the late 1840s, that there may, may have been Sikh criminals who were uh, banished to Singapore. But in any case, this letter then makes its way all the way to Punjab where the local authorities then send it on to uh, the address to which the letter had been sent. No one's there to pick up the letter. The letter then makes its way back to uh, the divisional uh, administrative headquarters. And there finally they have uh, a missionary, I'm guessing, because the one person who knew Punjabi well enough at that point were one or two missionaries probably translated this. And when they translated, they discovered oh, it's not a letter to one's parents or brothers or sisters saying, hey, I'm doing well, I'm here, this, that, and the other. But it's very much a political letter, which is not only giving the coordinates of where they are, but also how bitter and angry and upset and uh, ready to take up arms these two men are. Uh, and they're just waiting for the right circumstances before they can rise up in arms again and continue the resistance that they mounted against uh, colonial rule in Punjab. That is incredibly fascinating because I had never thought about the sort of materiality of the script itself, where it being written in Gurumukhi meant that they could bypass it in colonial senses. Whereas, for example, you had mentioned that most of these other prisoners were conversant or fluent in Hindustani, which could either be rendered in Nastalik or Devnagri. And I would imagine that the colonial authorities had a lot more fluency or capacity to read these two scripts because of how common, commonly employed they were comparatively. Um, and just, here, I just, sorry. Just interrupt you to throw in a couple of sentences. So the superintendent of convicts, his credentials were, were stronger if he had India experience because the India experience meant he knew Hindustani. So, and, and many of the officials who operate in, in these uh, Southeast Asian enclaves Many of them have India experience, as does, of course, the military, because the military and the officers all come from India to Southeast Asia. That is incredibly fascinating. So in some ways, India functions as a sort of um, training ground, so to speak, for many of the colonial administrators who would eventually be dispatched to Singapore or to Southeast Asia, more broadly speaking. Yeah, India is kind of the, the, the metropole or Southeast Asian colonies. It's the jewel in the crown for the British Empire. Uh, it's, there's this circuit which many officials and which many uh, military officials travel, which is India and Southeast Asia. And in the case of a handful of them, 
Australia. That's very fascinating. So, you know, experience in Southeast Asia, then to Australia. And in one case, I think uh, Australia to Southeast Asia. I see. And to perhaps zoom out a little bit to, to talk about the context of Singapore, um, it was really in Singapore that an entire administrative infrastructure, as you have described, was developed around maximizing labor output and minimizing maintenance costs. So here I just want to ask, what role did a convict population play in Singapore's early commercial development as an entrepreneur city, as a strategic hub in Southeast Asia? And how does this understanding of the centrality of convict labor contribute perhaps to a revisionist perspective of Singapore's economic history? Well, you know, um, as somebody who uh, travels to Singapore frequently, you know, it's the, what Bhai Marad Singh and Kalak Singh saw and mentioned in their letters, it's near to China. And I think they're playing up the China thing because of course that presence is very much there even in the mid 19th century. Today, of course, it's even more manifest in Singapore just in terms of the sheer size of the population. And to some extent, the rhetoric of race and ethnicity in Singapore, that it's really the, this, the genius of its Chinese inhabitants to a certain extent that has made Singapore what it is, right? And India is coming up, but it was always uh, the majority Chinese population that were fundamental to the emergence of Singapore as this gleaming city of the 20, late 20th and early 21st century. Uh, so what that, what that kind of history completely neglects, and it's a neglect that the Indian community is not eager to underline either, that there's this whole convict past that Singapore has, that the rise of Singapore by the late 19th century is largely due to its infrastructure developed by hard labor performed by largely Indian convicts and the sort of early Chinese settlers who come and really tear down the, 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 the jungles and the forests and really create the plantation agriculture that Singapore initially has in the late 19th century. But almost every building between 1825 and the 1860s and 1870s every road, every wharf, uh, every bridge is largely the handiwork of Indian convicts who are there uh, at its peak, uh, who are 2,600 strong in Singapore, organized into teams of 100, 200, 300 men who are doing all this work, who do everything from uh, uh, manning the fire engines to going out in the jungles to kill the tigers because uh, convicts are considered very good at uh, killing tigers since they're familiar with this kind of stuff uh, to even serving as uh, uh, lowly policemen and also thinking of Indians as uh, anytime we have these Chinese riots in the late uh, 19th century, we can use Indians to contain them. And of course, the Indian Chinese communities have lots of superstitions about one another uh, that become public in rumors and gossip uh, in the mid to late 19th century, where each, where each community fears the others. And you know, some of this plays out, of course, in the figure of the Sikh 
uh, policemen or the Sikh guard of banks and financial institutions across Southeast Asia and East Asia, particularly Hong Kong. No, it's completely fascinating because, of course, in, in many colonial metropoles like Hong Kong, Shanghai, Penang, Singapore, with large Chinese diasporic populations, there's an entire set of imaginary around this figure of the Sikh god. And if you were to visit Penang, for instance, uh, there are certain ancestor clan uh, mansions or Kongsis, the most famous of which is Ku Kongsi in, in the heart of Georgetown. You'd find it in addition to all these motifs of Chinese deities and Chinese gods, they also had two statues of Sikh gods just like standing right up in front of, of the mansion, um, which I think really attests to this sort of mutual, mutually constructed imaginary of Chinese and Indian difference and what they came to embody respectively. Um, and here, um, perhaps moving more into uh, the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, um, your epilogue narrates the late 19th century end of penal transportation, and it also tracks the afterlives of, of convicts once the convict establishment was disbanded in the straight settlements. So what were some of the most common narrative threats that emerged from this historical moment, and how did former convicts fashion lives for themselves? Um, and what came to replace convict labor as the main form of labor um, with the growth of the plantation and mining economy in British Malaya? Yeah, I mean, to sort of take the last part back, you can just see that in the numbers of migrants that come from South Asia to different parts of the Southeast Asia, beginning in kind of the 1850s and 60s, where it goes from 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 into 100,000 plus because the needs, the labor imperatives are very different. You need huge inputs of labor uh, to man plantations and, and mines. And by that time, also transportation to Southeast Asia has been stopped. Uh, and all the convicts are being sent to uh, the Andaman Islands. There's that. And then in terms of the convicts, I suppose you could say that one way to think of how successful were, were the convicts in their post-convict life. You, you could say one of the hallmarks is, is of success is their disappearance, that they blended into uh, this growing uh, Indian community that emerged in, uh, in Southeast Asia, that in many of these penal colonies, the fact that you can no longer tell who has convict ancestors tells you something about how successful they were into intermarrying, blending, blending in, uh, becoming small-time entrepreneurs, or in the case of one or two, becoming fairly well-off. And about them, you know more, only because they were such high-profile people. But the rank-and-file convicts, their success stories is they, be, they became part of the larger Indian diaspora. So part of the Tamil diaspora, part of the Bengali diaspora, part of uh, the diaspora of whatever communities, whatever places they came from. But mostly based in the late 19th century in the post-convict phase, started out in professions that they were most familiar with. So if you look at many postcards, many photos, many pictures from the late 19th century, whether it's Penang, Malacca, Singapore, you see pictures of workers, laborers, and many of those laborers are probably convicts. Uh, many of the people who are milkmen, because cow herding was one of the 
one of the occupations people did. Many of the lowly guards in buildings are convicts. Many of the initial skilled hands, such as potters, bricklayers, construction workers, many of them are probably free convicts. So many of these jobs they took up. But then there were others who uh, used their term either as convicts or when they were on parole of one sort or another to amass wealth. And about some of them we know a little bit more and we can even hazard fairly well-informed guesses that among the most prosperous Indians from the late 19th or early 20th century are people who are of likely convict origin. But because um, unlike in Australia, no one's stepping forward to say, I came over on the convict Mayflower ship, right? You know, there's still this sense of the convict stain that led to silence in the case of Australia until the last 30, 40 years when it's, a, it's become a badge of pride to say, I have convict ancestors. Till that happens in Southeast Asia, not many people are willing to divulge uh, the origins of their, fam of their family backgrounds. That's incredibly fascinating, I think. Um, and I think that that also brings us to the question of the stakes of this work, because as you, has, as, you, as you have mentioned, many of the descendants of these former convicts understand their family histories in a particular way. And if you were to go to present-day Singapore and Malaysia today, these histories of convict labor are not exactly acknowledged or commemorated in the public sphere. So I just want to pose a question. What are the stakes of returning to this history of convict labor today? And can we observe any continuities between this 19th century world of convict labor with the phenomenon of mass incarceration unfree labor and racial capitalism that we witness in our political present? Yeah, I think, I think when everyone goes to Singapore, and maybe because of my own heritage, I'm always struck by the ethnicity of who's out there laboring under the tropical sun, right? And very often now in Singapore, it's uh, people from South Asia, no longer from India necessarily, very often from Bangladesh. Uh, uh, from some parts of India, but mostly Bangladeshis who are doing a lot of the hard labor in, in across Southeast Asia. So this sort of tells you about um, the inequities between and among different parts of the world that lead to certain flows of labor, whether at the behest of a state that is able to exert the various kinds of poles to bring in the labor, or whether it's because of income inequality, or whether it's about income levels, or whether it's about uh, the economic state of different kinds of economies that, that provides the tug to bring in labor. That exists, these kinds of inequalities lead to these kinds of dis disparities across uh, the capitalist world. You know, which countries at the core and which are in the, in the peripheries of that kind of system. And you also see that in our own society, particularly in the United States, where mass incarceration is a characteristic of uh, our present day US society, where large numbers of people locked up and large numbers of people locked up and their productivity exploited by the state 
uh, where they're put to work in various kinds of things, whether it's managing to, whether it's training dogs or whether it's actually producing things uh, that they do while they're serving time. Uh, and that labor becomes a way to neutralize uh, some of the energies and perhaps some of the aggressiveness of some of the people that are uh, understandably very unhappy about their, their penal conditions, their prison conditions. Uh, so the way states use uh, bodies that they can control and bodies they can control who they have deemed uh, controllable and, and subordinate because of uh, crimes they have committed. Sometimes as in the history of penal transportation, their crime can be a feather or uh, a piece of cloth that some poor person stole or some a piece of bread that somebody took from a bakery and that land, landed them in Australia. Similarly today, uh, all kinds of things that the state deems illegal uh, leads to certain kinds of people pre predominantly ending up in prison, people of color, people who are poor. In an earlier time in uh, the British imperial system, it was people who were racialized as an other and necessarily criminal. And among them, certain kinds of criminals targeted and uh, sent over to these penal colonies to develop them on behalf of uh, this expanding British empire across the Indian Ocean. Thank you so much for that. Um, and I think that that's a really poignant and urgent sort of ending to, to our podcast interview today. So before we move on to our last traditional question, can you please read a paragraph from your book? Sure, I will, uh, since uh, it fits in very nicely with what I was just saying. So this is from um, the introduction. Ruling criminal and unruly subjects in colonized lands necessitated brutal and harsh regimes of discipline. In the penal colonies that meant subjecting convicts to labor regimes that exacted a pound of flesh, their work being perceived as rehabilitating them into becoming productive and pliant subjects. Penal transportation targeted both their bodies and minds to exploit their brawn for colonial and imperial projects and to coax them into shouldering heavy workloads. Disciplinary regimes were therefore both exacting and indulgent, violence always a threat and mercy a state of exception, but a possibility. Colonial rule often cloaked its iron fist in a velvet glove. Very little effort, if, if any, went into configuring legal and penal institutions to induce moral reforms in people convicted of crimes. Thank you. That's beautiful. That's incredibly moving. Well, Anand, we've taken up a lot of your time. So could you just briefly tell us what you're working on now, as well as your current and future projects? Sure, I'm working on a couple of projects. One is on uh, Delhi in kind of the early 60s. So it's, it's sort of uh, a book that is at the intersection of memory and history. My memory of my uh, youth, really childhood. And so it's, it's partly reflecting on uh, 
the trustworthiness or untrustworthiness of anybody's memory, particularly a historian's memory of a Delhi in the early 1960s, a Delhi that was part of a non-aligned neutral India at a time of scarcity, a very different kind of city uh, in kind of than say India and its global uh, status and its global economy. And the second is sort of, it ties in with this convict uh, history is returning to the peasants who were involved in, in migration across India. Now it's taking the same group of peasants that I've been studying for a very long time and tracking their movements overseas. And these made up um, a significant proportion of India, Indian migrants who went to the Caribbean and went to Mauritius and Fiji. So Indian mobility across uh, the Pacific Indian oceans, as well as the Caribbean in the 19th and early 20th centuries. That's incredibly interesting. And I think that that also toggles between what we mentioned before, between the microhistorical of memory and Delhi with the sort of macro structural of thinking about Indian migration within a global and trans-regional trans context. And I'll definitely be on the lookout for those two works from you as well. But for now, thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored The Empire of Convicts by Professor Anand Yang, published by University of California Press in 2021. You can find the book on bookshop.org and other outlets. Thank you so much, Anand, for joining us today. Thank you, Kelvin, and thanks to all the listeners out there. Thank you. This is your host, Kelvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.